welcome to the fourth episode of the Climate History Podcast, the official podcast of the Climate History Network and historicalclimatology.com. I'm Dagmar de Groot, Professor of Environmental History at Georgetown University, co-director of the Climate History Network, and director of historicalclimatology.com. We've been away for a while, and there are a few reasons for that. First and foremost, our contributing editor, Benoit Le Cavalier, did a really great interview with Valérie Maison Delmo, one of the top people at the IPCC, and we couldn't get that on a podcast. You can, however, check it out on our website. Second, I wanted to improve the sound quality of this podcast, which has been a little inconsistent. It can be hard to get that top-tier quality when you're Skyping someone, so I've tried to arrange in-person conversations. These can take a little more time to set up. Luckily, we're now getting some new audio equipment, so this shouldn't be a problem anymore. Finally, we've been changing the way we do things at historicalclimatology.com. You may have noticed that we've tried to open up the site, so it features not only pieces I've written, but also many articles from a whole host of people in diverse disciplines. I wanted to turn the site into a more comprehensive resource for sharing the insights of those who study past climate changes. Our site already receives around 300,000 hits a year, but we have a chance to make it even bigger than that, and I'm trying to do that by bringing in more voices. Okay, with all that said, I'm delighted to introduce a guest I've long wanted to interview, environmental historian John R. McNeil, my established colleague here at Georgetown University. For scholars around the world in a whole range of disciplines, John McNeil needs no introduction. He's written dozens and dozens of peer-reviewed articles and book chapters. He's also written six books and edited or co-edited another 12. He may well be best known for something new under the sun, an environmental history of the 20th century world, which received both the World History Association Book Prize and the Forest History Society Book Prize. He's the recipient of one of those MacArthur Genius Grants and a Guggenheim Fellowship, among many other awards, and he's a past fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center. McNeil is one of the world's leading experts on the profound environmental changes that humanity has quite recently set in motion. These changes have so transformed the world that some scholars speculate that we have entered a new geological epoch, the Anthropocene. That epoch, which is defined in part by rapid anthropogenic climate change, was the topic of our conversation recently. Professor McNeil, thank you so much for walking down the hall here at Georgetown and coming into my office and joining the Climate History Podcast. Always glad to be in your office, by the way. <laughs> uh, you are part of the Anthropocene Working Group for the Subcommission on Quaternary Stratigraphy, and you've written some of the most important books on the environmental history of the past century. How would you define the term Anthropocene? So there are lots of different definitions competing out there, but the one that I currently am happiest with, and parenthetically I'd like to say that I'd like to think I would change my mind if confronted with compelling evidence for 
a different definition. That's the end of the parenthesis. The one that I currently uh, regard as the best or the least bad definition in the Anthropocene is the period since about the middle of the 20th century. And the reasons for that are partly that in that period and only in that period, basic biogeochemical cycles of the Earth have been altered and not just tweaked by human activity. So I'm talking about the carbon cycle, the nitrogen cycle, the sulfur cycle. Beyond that, there's a whole basket of variables that uh, have changed their trajectory right around the middle of the 20th century. And this is very um, readily visible on the website of the um, International Biosphere Geosphere Program a set of so-called uh, Great Acceleration Graphs posted by uh, Will Steffen of Australian National University and colleagues. So one can see uh, 15 or 20 um, indicators of environmental change and driving forces behind environmental change that seem to change the trajectory in the middle of the 20th century. So these are two different but connected reasons why I would say, and why most members of the Anthropocene Working Group say that the middle of the 20th century is the least bad choice for an Anthropocene, and that the Anthropocene represents that period interval, shouldn't say period because that has a more specific meaning in geology, interval of time, in which and there are two ways to go here. Either the basic biogeochemical uh, systems and cycles of the Earth have been uh, fundamentally changed by human activity. That's one way to look at it. Or the total human impact on the environment around the world has accumulated an intensity that separates it from times past. And that last is a little bit harder to specify because, first of all, the, the total human impact on the global environment is consists of hundreds of different um, things, and their chronologies and trajectories are not all parallel. And in some respects, there are huge human impacts on the environment that occurred far earlier. So if one has to choose, I would say the basic biogeochemical cycles is the place to look at what distinguishes the Anthropocene from the Holocene. Lots of different viewpoints, however, on this. Hmm. And so, why is this concept so valuable and so necessary now? There's an assumption behind that question, which is that it is valuable and necessary now. Um, and 
lots of people disagreed. There's a community of opinion that uh, would just assume that the whole discussion of the Anthropocene would stop this afternoon. But let's put that aside for the moment. Uh, if it is valuable, and personally I would say uh, balance yes it is, uh, the main reason in, in my view is that the concept and term Anthropocene bring into sharp relief what has been going on and what is going on in terms of society-environment relations, basically in terms of human impact on the earth. And I think it brings into sharp relief the fact, at least I regard it as a fact, that the um, significance of this has ratcheted up in recent history and that is not um, a long-standing uh, arithmetic project, um, progression but shows a sharp um, points of inflection, and the sharpest point of inflection, as I see it, is the middle of the 20th century. Mm. Bear in mind that um, lots of people think that the most important change that ever took place happened approximately the time that they were born, and that everything was different previously, and... Um, I was born in the 1950s, so I can perhaps be <laughs> accused of um, seeing the Anthropocene debates as I see them just because of uh, when I was born. I'd like to think, again, that that's not the case and that I'm uh, open to evidence uh, arguing all sorts of rival positions, but one has to be suspicious uh, about these things. <laughs> Now, do you think that the concept can encourage real change in the here and now? Is it also a political? Uh, does, does it have a, a political value? Uh, well, it has a political meaning. Mm. And in fact, this is part of the objection that some geologists hold, claim that the Anthropocene is not really a scientific concept and not worthy of uh, geologists' attention. It is only a political, or sometimes they would say political and cultural uh, phenomenon. Uh, and it is that, in my view, a political and cultural phenomenon. Whether that's uh, a valuable thing or not, people might honestly disagree. I happen to think it is, because I happen to think drawing attention to the scale, scope, and pace of environmental change, especially fundamental environmental change of the sort of the biogeochemical cycles, uh, is important and uh, perilous to ignore. Now, as part of the Anthropocene Working Group, I imagine you worked alongside a lot of scientists, and I'm wondering that as a historian, did you find yourself emphasizing ideas or themes 
uh, in the debate about when to actually start this Anthropocene that perhaps others did not? Uh, probably yes. To say that I worked alongside scientists is a bit of an exaggeration because the Anthropocene Working Group is a community of uh, something like 35 or 40 people, almost all of them natural scientists, most of them geologists, and within that, stratigraphers. But we exist essentially as uh, an online uh, email community and hold our discussions uh, only that way. There have actually been uh, human face-to-face -face meetings of the of subsets of the Anthropocene Working Group, but only a few people have been able to attend. So uh, alongside should be understood uh, in a um, cosmic or electronic <laughs> sense. But that aside, um, yeah, I probably have seen a lot of uh, issues differently um, from my colleagues. I can give you an example or two. Um, so for many people trained as stratigraphers, a huge issue is that of the so-called uh, golden spike. Every interval of time in the geological record ideally has something somewhere that can be pointed to that shows the end of one interval and the beginning of another. Something in the rock or in the ice that will allegedly be durable and in the best of all possible worlds can be seen not just in one spot but in several spots. There's multiple golden spikes indicating the same thing. That doesn't always happen and only about three-quarters of the boundaries in the official uh, geological time scale at the moment actually have golden spikes. But for many in the stratigraphy community, before you can have an Anthropocene, you have to be able to point to a convincing golden spike. Now, for me, as a historian, it's not such a big deal. And I can conceive of being perfectly happy with a revision to the geological time scale that either doesn't have a golden spike or has half a dozen candidates for a golden spike, but I don't require full agreement and clearly identified golden spike. But then I'm not trained as a stratigrapher. To me, it would be perfectly good to be able to say middle of the 20th century rather than to be required to say, here's the golden spike in the rock or in the ice. So that's the difference, and it's basically an outcome of different socialization in different academic disciplines. That sort of thing happens all the time in interdisciplinary work, and the Anthropocene Working Group um, exhibits that tendency in full measure. So you mentioned some of the criticisms of the Anthropocene concept, and you know there are obviously a lot of them. Some of them come from scientists, some of them come from humanists. Um, but the one I think I've come across the most 
argues that the concept of an Anthropocene wrongly displaces guilt for present-day environmental crises from uh, those responsible for them, you know, big corporations, Western elites, to humanity as a whole, and that it carries with it the assumption that people, all people, um, have caused, have contributed to environmental destruction, that it's something innate to human beings. Um, how would you respond to that, and do you think that this criticism is valid? I would say yes, it is a valid criticism. The earliest um, articulation of this that I saw was uh, an article, I think, in 2014 by Alf Hornborg and Andreas Malm. In fact, I think the authorship is listed the other way around, Andreas Malm first. Both uh, anthropologists, both uh, at the University of Lund in Sweden. And their view is that the, the term and the Greek root, anthropos, is indeed, as your question suggests, uh, misleading and hides a stark reality that they would like to see uh, revealed in uh, broad daylight. And my reaction to that is that the term Anthropocene may have that uh, effect, but uh, in the absence of uh, any better term that encapsulates the uh, magnitude, the scale, scope, and pace of uh, environmental transformation, that Anthropocene is uh, better than nothing. Now, various people have um, proposed various other terms, the capitalocene and so forth. The defects with these, I think, are, first of all, they're not likely to catch on and uh, would certainly destroy any um, harmony between the geological community and the social science and humanist community, because the, the geologists would never in a million years uh, go for the capitalocene. I think it's reasonable to, to say. <laughs> uh, so any uh, alternative language, I think, suffers from various uh, practical uh, and also intellectual defects. Therefore, uh, by default, so to speak, the Anthropocene seems to me the, the least bad term that, uh, that I've encountered. So uh, that's a tepid endorsement, but um, that's the way the matter stands uh, as far as I'm concerned. There are other critiques that are not focused on the terminology so much as the very concept uh, within geology. There are many prominent geologists who object, saying that it's too soon to tell, or without a golden spike we can't uh, christen a new interval in the geological time scale, um, or the candidates for golden spikes aren't going to be durable enough, if they're not going to last millions of years, they aren't uh, satisfactorily reliable. That to me is an interesting, curiously interesting argument. 
since it presupposes there'll be geologists worrying about the same things in a few million years. But um, within the profession of geology, there are a handful of different positions that uh, object to the concept as well as the term. Mm. Is climate change the most important element of the Anthropocene, do you think? Potentially or already? Um, well, the first thing I would say is it's too soon, too soon to tell, um, but it's probably the leading candidate at present. Mm. It could be that in the fullness of time, there'll be other components of the Anthropocene that, so to speak, put climate change in the shade, but I wouldn't bet on it, and... It would, in my view, it would take some time before any candidate could manifest that kind of potential. But let's just say hypothetically that um, the reduction of biodiversity in the next century or two is uh, even more thorough than some of the projections. The projections are dire enough, but maybe they're underestimates. And it could be then that uh, from a vantage point 300 years in the future, that it will seem that the reduction in biodiversity is even more important than climate change. But that depends on a future, two futures actually, one in terms of climate change, the other in terms of biodiversity change, that we cannot uh, accurately foresee. Could be that climate change will be rather less dramatic than the current expectations. Could be that it will be more dramatic than the current <laughs> expectations. And as long as we don't know those things, we can't answer with any confidence whether climate change is the most important component of the Anthropocene or not. Mm. So let's check back in 300 years. <laughs> I want to ask you about something we've talked about a lot in the past year, and something I've written about on historicalclimatology.com, an article that actually became our most popular ever. And this is the idea that the Anthropocene may have started in 1610. Readers of our site will know that the argument goes like this. When the Spanish reached the Americas, their pathogens and their deprivations killed millions of people. In the relative absence of people, the really powerful carbon sinks that our tropical forests expanded, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. Temperatures then cooled in a way we can still track today. By 1610, atmospheric CO2 reached a low point, and since all of this happened in the wake of the transformative Columbian exchange, it makes a good starting point for the Anthropocene. Now, I, I gave the evidence for this argument on our site, and then I criticized it, but I'm wondering, do you place any stock in it? Uh, no, not much. Uh, in fact, there's a piece uh, published by the Anthropocene Working Group that um, tackles some of that argument, the Lewis and Maslin argument for 1610. And part of the... Uh, 
questioning of that of their interpretation is the um, the magnitude of that uh, climate signal, the magnitude of the CO2 uh, departure around 1610, and um, I cannot reproduce the figures off the top of my head, but many people who look at the uh, wiggles in the curve of carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere don't see uh, all that big a change uh, in and around 1610. And then, how confident can one be that this represents an anthropogenic uh, impact as opposed to something else? And here I felt in the initial article of uh, Lewis and Maslin that they made some uh, heroic assumptions <laughs> and inferences that neither they nor anybody else had examined. So, for example, they take some figures for uh, depopulation in the Americas in the wake of um, Spanish conquest and um, the arrival of uh, crowd diseases in the Americas. And this is um, substantially guesswork. Nobody knows what the human population in 1491 was, and nobody knows how rapidly that population declined after 1492, but even if their estimates, which are responsible within the uh, boundaries of specialist estimates on this issue, even if their estimates are correct, there's some other problems because climate and CO2 concentrations uh, respond to the global changes in uh, carbon release and uh, carbon absorption by living things, not just what's happening in the Americas. So one would have to assay what was going on in terms of vegetation in the Americas against what was going on with respect to vegetation in every other corner of the globe. And even if it is the case that there's substantial revegetation in the Americas after 1492, or let us say in the course of the 16th century, that does not necessarily translate into global carbon dioxide concentration changes unless one holds Asia and Africa constant, which is a heroic assumption and probably counter to the historical reality in which, on balance, forest clearance and devegetation was taking place in the 16th century in Africa and Asia, although there are no precise data. But that's more likely than the opposite. So what was going on in the Americas was, to some extent, counterbalanced by what was going on elsewhere in the world. That's one problem. A second problem with the Lewis and Maslin argument is that it assumes that depopulation, loss of human population in the Americas translates into uh, spontaneous revegetation. And in some landscapes that's probably true. In other landscapes it's probably not true because of the simultaneous introduction of grazing animals, uh, cattle, horses, sheep, and goats in particular, which had not existed in the Americas, well, 
in the uh, Paleolithic there had been horses, but let's forget that for the moment. So that the moose and the deer and the browsing animals and grazing animals such as bison now had companions who were busily nibbling their way across the American continents. And so whatever spontaneous revegetation was going on, and I don't mean to suggest there was none going on, was slowed by the presence of new grazing and browsing animals. And Lewis and Maslin do not recognize this possibility at all. So I thought that their article uh, had some big problems with it, and I don't take all that seriously, their effort to pin the Anthropocene to 1610, or even to identify 1610 as any kind of significant moment in the history of climate. Mm -hmm. So, skipping forwards by about 350 years, uh, what is the Great Acceleration? So, the Great Acceleration is a term that I'm happy to say is in increasing usage to refer to the mid-20th century acceleration in human impact on the environment. As far as I'm aware, this uh, use of the term arose in a particular conference in the suburbs of Berlin in about 2005, and uh, Will Steffen and I started to use this term I thought it made a good um, echo of uh, Karl Polanyi's title, The Great Transformation, a book published in 1944 that uh, examines what you could call the marketization of uh, Western and particularly British society in the 18th and 19th century. At any rate, um, The Great Acceleration, more and more people seem to be using to refer to this mid-20th century change of pace in human impact on the environment. So if one takes the view, as I do, that the Anthropocene begins in the mid-20th century and the Great Acceleration begins in the mid-20th century, it raises the question, what's the relation between the two? And here's my answer to that. The Great Acceleration is the first phase of the Anthropocene. It is a spectacularly unsustainable phase. But the Anthropocene is sure to last. That is, a substantially human-modified planet with its basic uh, biogeochemical cycles deeply affected by human activity, that's not going to fade away, even though the acceleration of human impact, let us say the rate of um, rivers dammed, the rate of uh, fisheries exhausted, the rate of tropical forests deforested, all these things, that acceleration that took place beginning in the mid-20th century 
is either already slowing or it's sure to slow uh, in the fairly near future. So the great acceleration is a shorter interval of time and it has no traction within geology and stratigraphy. It is, I think, uh, germane to environmental history and indirectly germane to all other sorts of history. But it's distinct from, conceptually distinct from the Anthropocene, even if it overlaps chronologically with the beginning of the Anthropocene. Mm. One of the ideas that really struck me in your newest book, for our listeners, this is a book that's co-authored with Peter and Gelke, and it's entitled The Great Acceleration. Um, holds that the Earth is in a new geological epoch, the Anthropocene. But humanity might not be. Uh, can you explain that? So, maybe indeed the Earth is in a new uh, epoch or epoch, and maybe it indeed should be called the Anthropocene or Anthropocene. Pronunciations differ in these uh, realms. And as I've said already, even that much uh, is very controversial. But let us, for the sake of uh, argument, suppose that that position is justified as regards Earth history and the geological timescale. Whether that deserves to be and will be recognized as a period in human history, and here one can use the term period a bit more loosely uh, than geologists can use it, uh, seems to me an open question. Uh, first of all, it's hard to say just how significant for non-environmental history the environmental changes of the Anthropocene are going to be. I happen to think they're meaningful and significant, but uh, there are many historians who look at things that they would say have no connection to environmental change, and therefore whatever is going on in the global environment and the human relationship with the environment is irrelevant to the history that they practice and pursue. Beyond that, we don't know what the future holds, and it could be that in 50 years' time, it will be impossible to imagine the late 20th century and the early 21st century without reference to the spectacular scale, scope, and pace of environmental change. That's possible. But it's also possible that in 50 years' time, other things will happen that will seem so important that what's going on in the realm of environmental history will seem uh, insignificant. And so in this respect, uh, one can say that the future will determine the past, or at least the past as we understand it. So this is, a, this is one of the more fun questions. Uh, you have a lot on the go, obviously. What project are you working on or planning that most excites you? So 
Well, there are many possible answers I could give to that question. Too many answers, because I'm not disciplined enough to <laughs> focus on one thing at a time. Probably the best answer I can give is uh, what I call work in prospect, because work in progress would be a bit of an exaggeration. And that is a global environmental history of the Industrial Revolution, or possibly a global environmental history of industrialization. And the difference between those two is that the Industrial Revolution is usually understood to be confined to only a few places in the very late 18th and into the 19th century, whereas the process of industrialization ultimately becomes much more widespread and spans the period from roughly 1780 uh, until the present. At the moment, I'm inclined towards using the term industrial revolution and constricting the project to roughly 1780 to 1900 or 1914 or 1920. And the animating concept behind this is not so much the pollution consequences of the Industrial Revolution in the lands of industrialization themselves, but rather the ecological consequences in the peripheral zones of the world economy of mobilizing ever greater quantities of ores and fibers and lubricant oils and other materials for the Industrial Revolution. So that takes the focus to places such as Australia and Argentina and Siberia and the American West and so on and so forth to the fringes of the world economy in the 19th century rather than the core zones and in my view does two things to our understanding of the Industrial Revolution. One, it makes it a more global event or process and not so much a British event or process that spread across the channel and then to eastern North America and so forth. And then secondly, it provides an understanding of the Industrial Revolution that is ecological as opposed to economic and social, which is the typical way that the Industrial Revolution is understood and given significance, which is not to say it doesn't deserve to be regarded as important for what it represents in economic and social terms. It does. I really merely wish to add to the equation a strong ecological significance and a global significance uh, insofar as that ecological change is concerned. To put it in a little bit more concrete terms. That last remark was pretty abstract. The, the reason I started down this path was uh, by uh, reading a sentence or two in uh, Andrew Eisenberg's book from 2001 called The Destruction of the Bison, in which he says that among the several reasons for the near annihilation of the U.S. bison herd, which had been 20 to 40 million before the American Civil War, 
and by 1881 was about 1,000 animals. Among the several reasons for this, one of the big ones, possibly the biggest one, was that bison hide made very good belting in textile factories. I think it was because it was less elastic than cattle leather. Maybe it was because it was more elastic. But whatever the reason, bison hide was better than cattle hide for this particular application. And that was interesting to me. I was surprised. And I began to think, well, what else did industrialization require that had ecological repercussions around the world? And so I'm on the hunt for such things. And I'm finding a few. It's kind of like after something new under the sun, you focus first on the more recent period, and then you cast your net back in time a little bit more, perhaps. Yes, uh, and in some respects, this w uh, would serve as a prequel to something new under the sun, but also a sequel to uh, John Richard's big fat book from 2004, mm. I think it was, The Unending Frontier, about the early modern centuries. Mm. Well... Thank you so much for joining our podcast. Dagmar, I'm honored to have joined your podcast and hope I did no lasting harm to your audience. I don't think so. <laughs> and thank you to our listeners for tuning in after so much time. I promise we're going to get these things out a little bit more quickly from now on. This is Dagmar DeGroote signing out from Georgetown. <laughs>